Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. This is Mike Fader. We are here every Monday at uh, 4 p.m. with Turning Point. <clears throat> if you want to get in touch with me about anything you hear on this program, you have an opinion, uh, whether you agree or disagree, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, the way to contact me is go to my website, FaderFiles, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com, FaderFiles dot com. Um, I suppose you've We've all heard more than we want to hear about this, but we have to keep hearing it and keep dealing with it, which is this uh, issue of terrorism, terrorism and terrorists, uh, the latest attack in Brussels. And today, uh, even a more recent attack that occurred uh, uh, in uh, Lahore in Pakistan, uh, an astoundingly 
Uh, well, you know, adjectives fail after a while. I mean, they, people set off uh, bombs in a playground, a uh, crowded playground when it was a holiday. And um, something like 60 people killed, 300 people wounded, lots of children. Um, this whole idea of the, the whole reality of terrorism is um, has got people in its grip and... Um, is there any way to make sense out of it? What do you do? How do you approach these people? How do you approach the whole idea? What do you? How do you look at it? And we have uh, somebody with us today who's had um, some experience, to say the least, in writing about this, thinking about it, and also had some service with the government for a long time, and that's Ray McGovern. Hi, Ray. Hi, Mike. Uh, let me uh, introduce you a little bit to the audience. I mean, some of you, I'm sure, know who you are right away. But uh, Ray served as a CIA analyst for 27 years, from the administration of John Kennedy to that of George H.W. Bush. His duties included chairing national intelligence estimates and um, preparing the president's daily brief, which he briefed one-on-one -on -one to President Ronald Reagan's five, made, five most senior national security advisors from 1981 to 1985. I guess that was during Iran-Contra, right? It was. Mm -hmm. hmm. In 2003, Ray helped create Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, VIPS, to expose the way intelligence was being falsified to justify war on Iraq. And... Um, he also leads the Speaking Truth to Power section of Tell the Word, a publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in inner city Washington. And he's had his opinion pieces in many uh, leading newspapers and publications in the U.S. and uh, abroad. Uh, C-SPAN's Washington Journal, CNN, BBC, and some domestic Russian TV channels and Al Jazeera, that kind of thing. Uh, how about a little bit um, about you and your background? And first of all, what is VIPS? What is Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity? Well, Mike, uh, VIPS is uh, exactly what's suggested there. Uh, we formed ourselves uh, during the crucible year of uh, 2002. We could see that uh, our profession of intelligence analysis was being well, what should we say? Well, I guess prostituted is not too strong a word. Mm. It was being corrupted for the express purpose of deceiving our elected representatives out of their constitutional prerogative to declare or otherwise authorize war. Now, that's as bad as it gets. I mean, in my day, <laughs> our job was to uh, speak truth without fear or favor, uh, speak truth to power or tell it like it is uh we had career protection in my day uh from uh, from retaliation from whatever generals or whatever uh just for telling the truth so when we watched uh, after 9-11 you know you, you you've heard the byword just so many times after 9-11 and I'd ask your audience to chime in after 9-11 everything mm -hmm. you got it change right so changed so, uh, much for the worse. Cheney yeah, changed. Anyhow, um, you know, I wish this were were funny, but it was not. Uh, right. We could see that weapons of mass destruction, uh, whereas they didn't exist in Iraq, and we had Condoleezza Rice telling us that six weeks before nine eleven. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, all of a sudden, after 9-11, well, let me put it this way, weapons of mass destruction wafted like manna uh, down from the heavens for a soft landing on uh, the surface of Iraq, where God made that terrible mistake of putting our oil Okay, mm-hmm. it doesn't doesn't happen that way. Okay, you don't get weapons of mass destruction in six weeks or six months or even six years. So we could smell it right initially. Uh, what do we do? Well, we were retired for the most part. A couple of us were not yet retired, but we could uh, resort to our previous ethos of speaking truth to power and figure out what was going on. Now, before you write an article and try to place it as an op-ed. Mm-hmm. Uh, saying that uh, Bush and Cheney are lying through their teeth. Well, you know, you like to do a little sanity check. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and some fact-checking, uh, you know. Yeah, in the old days, you know, you'd check with your colleagues and say, well, here's the evidence I see. What, what you think? You think I'm going too far here? Or, well, that's the, that's the reason for the word sanity at the end of veteran intelligence professionals for sanity. Mm-hmm. We're giving ourselves sanity checks before we published, and we published copiously all during 2002 when we could see that these lies were being manufactured, that the ties between Iraq and al-Qaeda did not exist, could not exist to the degree that Saddam Hussein hated, uh, uh, hated Osama bin Laden and vice versa, and there was no evidence. It was just all concocted, and the miserable part for us was that our former colleagues, instead of blowing a whistle on this, they caved. Uh, They were more interested in their next promotion. They are more interested in falling in with this pre-war fervor than they were in telling the truth. So that's how we Mm -hmm. formed ourselves. Uh, We uh, had been having these sanity checks all throughout 2002. When we heard that uh, Colin Powell was going to be the designated pinch hitter, since he had more credibility than either Bush or Cheney or the two of them put together, uh, we figured, whoops, here it comes. Uh, he needs uh, he needs to be critiqued the way we used to do a, <laughs> a speech from Khrushchev or Stalin or Mao or Castro. Mm-hmm. We need to do a same-day analysis, and so we did. That was our first uh, our first issuance. Um, it was the same day as Powell spoke at the UN. We got it out on the AFP wire, and I just I'll tell you what the final sentence is. Yeah. Said we said, uh, Mr. President, we we strongly advise you to broaden the circle of your advisors beyond those uh, who seem uh, bent on a, on, on a war for which we see no compelling reason, and from which we believe the unintended consequences are likely to be catastrophic, end quote. Now, I think we're we seeing a lot no, of that now. Yeah. yeah, we take no pleasure in having you been right about that. But uh, uh, And that time, uh, it got out on the AFP wire, and we were deluged. Oh, man, the media was all over us, the Japanese, uh, the Germans, the Italians, the Finns, you know, the, every, oh, but uh, actually... Mike, you might find this a little interesting or odd, but no U.S. media was interested in what we had to say. Unfortunately, I, I don't find that odd, and uh, maybe you could explain the reason why that is. I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but... Yeah, well, the media was uh, was cheerleading for the war, all of them. New York Times, New York Washington Times, yeah. Post, yeah. 
I mean, they were, I had never seen anything like it. Uh, on the basis of clearly cooked inf information, uh, they were, uh, you know, actually cooperating in this little pas de dieu, you know. What they would do is uh, the administration, for example, in September 2002, they would leak a report to the New York Times. Right, Judith Ooh. Miller. Yeah. yeah, guess what happened? Uh, we found aluminum tubes that can only be used for for nuclear, uh, for for creating nuclear uh, material for weapons, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, they leaked that on a Friday. Uh, they give the Times uh, data, write it up, it appears on Sunday morning, and on the same day, quite coincidentally, all the main Bush spokespeople appear on all the main Sunday talk shows, and they're asked by all the main interlocutors, did you see, did you see that report in the New York Times this morning? What mm -hmm. do you think of it? And Condoleezza Rice and the rest and say, well, yeah, but, uh, we've, che we've checked it out. Uh, wow, it looks pretty dangerous. And we don't want the first indication, the first tangible indication that Saddam Hussein has a nuclear weapons program to be or to come in the form of a mushroom cloud. Mushroom cloud, mushroom cloud. They all said mushroom cloud. That but is, it, is, the, is there anything September. new about this with the press? I mean, uh, the, the New York Times was uh, was wholeheartedly behind, uh, um, you know, Johnson, Gulf of Tonkin. I mean, it, it, is there, was there a time, do you think, in American history where the press didn't join right in with whatever war the president or the Congress wanted? Well... I mean, how is it any you, different? Well... This one was an orchestrated attempt. This was uh, a, a situation where those who had something important to say, like us, okay, hmm. we got that thing out. It was all over abroad. But uh, I have to say that the, the press in Germany and press in the U.K. are as, uh, as corporate-owned and as, uh, as uh, unwilling to tell the truth as the ones here. So... So the idea is that uh, here was a war coming, right? A war based on uh, lies, and we saw them to be lies. Now we know there's, you know, there's documented proof that there were lies, mm. and that they knew. And in other words, when Americans hear that the whole, oh, you know, Bush and Cheney say, "Oh, that," and we have any regrets? Yeah, one regret that there was the mistaken intelligence on Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. Well, it wasn't mistaken, folks. It was fraud. It was out-and-out -out fraud. And my great regret is that my former colleagues participated 100% in creating that fraud. No one blew the whistle. Let me, let me ask you a little bit about your, your career. It's 27 years, starting with Kennedy, right? And that's when mm -hmm. we, were, we were getting more and more and more. I just got through uh, rereading uh, a a bright shining lie, you know the book of the John Paul Van and American right. in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I suggest to anybody who wants to learn all about our involvement in Vietnam in every possible way, politically, militarily, uh, the CIA, anything um, about the the kind of people who were fighting on both sides. Uh, read this book called A Bright Shining Lie, and so. Kennedy, uh, in the beginning, according to this book, written by Neil Sheehan, a reporter for the New York Times and various other places, he was taking advice uh, from certain generals. Uh, he had been in World War II, Kennedy, obviously, and he knew people from there, and he trusted certain people, and he was taking advice, and he was, um, 
He was inserting, you know, advisors, quote-unquote. It always starts with advisors. We've got advisors in um, in Iraq now, near the Syrian border, et cetera, near ISIS. So that's how it always started. But, the, but you were there when this stuff was happening. And then all the while during Vietnam, you were working for the CIA. And then later on... Um, with all kinds of other involvement that we had over in the Middle East and other places, and all the way straight through uh, 1985 and even later, you were working there. So what? What? Uh, why did you join in the first place, and what, what kept you there? Well, Mike, uh, it's not really all that difficult to explain. Let me just say that there are two CIAs, okay, mm. two of them. There's the one that Truman intended, and he said so many times, particularly after the assassination of John Kennedy. He said, look, I never, I never intended an operational cloak and dagger type part of the CIA. My notion was to get a group of analysts, like somewhat like a university, that would have uh, access to all manner of information on a given issue or country and serve up analysis to me without any embroidery, without any, uh, as he said, tailoring by the defense, by the State Departments, to tell it to me straight so I could make good decisions. Now, as part of that effort, there needed to be a clandestine collection capability. In other words, you can't learn everything you need to know without some spies. And mm-hmm. so there was this collection mechanism called the Directorate of Operations, which would collect, would recruit spies and try to get extra information to the analysts. That was the primary purpose. Now, by an accident of history, Mike, uh, going back to the end of World War II, the operations folks that were then known as the Office of Strategic Services, mm-hmm. and let, let's, let's admit right off the top that they did an incredibly imaginative, courageous job in both the European theater and the Asian theater. Okay, so they come back, okay? They're really good at overthrowing governments. They're really good at, you know, right. they're, they're, behind. Okay, so they come back and they say, thanks a lot for all the applause, but... Uh, like, um, I mean, you, you want to, I mean, should, should we hang around Washington here? Or do you want us, or should we go back to our law firms, our corporations, back to our universities? What do you want? Mm-hmm. Now, put yourself in this position. 1946, you got the, the Russians taking over Eastern Europe. You got the KGB all over the world, overthrowing governments. And so George Kennan and some of our top policymakers said, hey, if the Russians have that capability, we need to do that, too. Now, whatever you think of that capability, the structural fault was created when some idiot said, hey, we're creating the CIA. And that's going to be secret because they collect some stuff from spies. So why don't we put the operations guys, why don't we put the people who, now we used to say overthrow governments, uh, Mike, you know, we use now it's regime change. Why don't we put the people who overthrow governments right in with the, the analysts, one happy family, all secret, it will be great. Mm-hmm. It was it was the stupidest mistake ever made because you can't have one director of central intelligence responsible for running a war, for example, in Nicaragua, right. and then have him have any credibility going up on the Hill when the Hill says, when some senator says, well, Mr. Casey, uh, what do you really think of the prospects for the, uh, uh, the Samosistas? 
You say, oh, they're not Samosistas, they're freedom fighters. Well, yeah, but they all come out of Samosas, uh, Nazi-like Praetorian Guard, right? No, no, they don't. Well, they they did. So what I'm saying here is that it was a very unfortunate uh, uh, fact of history that these two CIAs became joined into one, and not until, and I would say this uh, with some exceptions, not until this debacle on Iraq, uh, were the analysts who were always encouraged and, and protected for telling the truth, were they enlisted in a, uh, mm. in a deliberate deception uh, in favor of, um, of covert action and, in this case, uh, a war of aggression? So that's when, when Cheney did something that I <clears throat> don't recall reading about or hearing about anybody else doing as he went, oh, I mean, basically since he was running everything that he went over to the CIA and at least told the CIA, this is not what I want to hear. I want to hear something else. And then they produced something else for him. Yeah, you see, they got a toady in there. Uh, his name was uh, uh, George Tenet. Uh, he was a kind of person who had no real uh, gravitas or format, as the Germans say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, you know, when, when Dick Cheney said, this is what you do, and they say, oh, by the way, I'm coming over on Monday morning. Uh, your analysts are not getting this right. You know, they're saying there are no ties between Saddam Hussein and Al Qaeda. And I have a hundred reports from from the White House staff and from my own staff that say they are. So I'm going to challenge them on that. Now, instead of George Tenet saying what any director of Central Intelligence should have said is, Mr. Vice President, thank you very much for your input. Uh, but please, uh, we'll come down to your office. Uh, we know you live real close, but it's really not quite appropriate that you come over to our office and help us with our analysis. Right. We'll come down. Now, how do I know that? Well, I used to brief Vice President. His name was George H.W. Bush. If he had a question, which he often did, and I couldn't answer it, I would be down there as soon as he could entertain a meeting with the real experts. We'd go down to him. That's the way it was done. That's the, you know, the mm-hmm. only way it should be done. What Cheney did, and this is more than once, this is about 12 times according to the reports, he just uh, on his way into the White House, he'd drop by the Langley and, and sit across from these young analysts, right? And he'd say, yes, they have weapons of mass destruction. We have five reports saying, but why do you say they don't? Now, the analyst is looking at Dick Cheney, but he knows that that sniveling bureaucrat, George Tenet, his boss as director of central intelligence, is standing right behind him, okay? So this young analyst is going to say, Mr. Vice President, those other reports are cockamamie things made up by Iraqi refugees. They're trying to get us into a war. That's why we don't believe them. He's not going to say that. Mm-hmm. He's got a mortgage. He's got kids, okay? So the whole system was corrupted. Well, Bush himself, wasn't Bush himself the head of the CIA? Say again? Bush, uh, George H.W. Bush, he was the the head of the CIA, wasn't he? Yeah, for uh, almost a year in 1975. Why do you ask? Well, just so because he understood, uh, or he should have understood, or maybe when he was running it, he saw how it worked, that the analysts were separate from any operational, you know, yeah, you're talking about the dad now, right? Yeah, So right. we're talking about the son. Right. So this is several decades later. Yeah, George and W. What, Bush. What, what H.W. Bush thought that really didn't matter, I tried to encourage him. Well, that's true. That's true. To, to tell his son 
why he kept these uh, crazies. But he had no in, he had no influence on on anything. There, so, well, I I made the college try right, and uh, I talked to uh, we're, we were friends, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the elder Bush and I. I known him when he was director. I, I briefed him every other morning when he was vice president for four years. And uh, so, you know, when his when his son came into office and brought the people in that we used to call, quote, the crazies, mm-hmm. end quote, Wolfowitz, Pearl, all these guys that we knew were going to be wreaking havoc, uh, I wrote to him. And I said, now, uh, uh, please, uh, would you do me a big favor? Could you just tell your son why it was <laughs> that when you were vice president or when you were, you know, when you were president, you kept these guys uh, in positions in the Department of Defense and elsewhere where they couldn't wreak havoc? Just tell them. Just tell them what the crazies are like. Well, if he did, didn't. I got a note back from him in two, two weeks. He said, yeah, well, I was afraid of the, quote, the crazies, end quote, having influence on my son. But uh, no, no, my son's, uh, you know, he's going to handle him just fine. Now, this is early 2003, before the war. Uh, you know, whether he tried to work some influence on young young George or not, uh, you're probably right. He was incapable of doing that. George is going to show his dad up. He's going to be more macho than he. He was going to be the, quote, first war president of the 21st century nothing going to prevent that so but that's the that's the reality here uh, the intelligence was deliberately um, well fixed is the word the british used fixed around the policy of deposing saddam hussein and using the, the link between saddam hussein and al-qaeda to suggest to the american people that saddam hussein had something to do with 9-11 and when we attacked Iraq, mm-hmm. 69% of the American people had been persuaded by our media and by our government that Saddam Hussein bore some measure of responsibility for 9-11. That's why it was so easy. Well, if, by the way, if you just tuned in, this is uh, Mike Fader, and this is The Turning Point, and we're listening to Ray McGovern, who is a, was a longtime uh, CIA analyst for close to 30 years. Uh, from the administrations of John Kennedy all the way through uh, George H.W. Bush. And uh, Ray, uh, in 2002, along with some other intelligence professionals, created veteran intelligence professionals for sanity to expose the way intelligence was being falsified to justify the war in Iraq. And um, you had a recent article in um, which appeared in Consortium News online, Consortium News, and... <clears throat> Uh, there's so many questions they ask here because the incidents of terrorism. Let me just say one thing here so that prepare it. Uh, in in these recent primaries, you know, you've got Trump running and you've got uh, Cruz running and they're issuing statements about what they would do, you know, if they were in charge, what they would do with ISIS and saying insane things, you know, almost like MacArthur or Curtis LeMay, you know, that's what it sounds like, right? But... Um, in North Carolina, there was a primary, and I think this is germane to the issue, so you can tell me what you think. North Carolina, there was a Republican primary, and people were interviewed who were voting, and they asked them down there, what is your main concern of all the issues, you know, unemployment, health insurance, uh, jobs, climate, you name it, right? Um, they said their main concern was terrorism. 
their main concern was terrorism. This is in North Carolina, you know, voters in North Carolina. And so this helps to explain why you've got these crazy kind of demagogic uh, people in the Republican Party. And, um, you know, it doesn't go so far with, uh, doesn't wander so far away from Hillary Clinton, who seems to have never met a war or an invasion she doesn't like. Um, why, why are people so afraid of terrorism and why will they, uh, I mean, it hasn't occurred in this country, but having said that, these, these things we read about in Brussels and in Paris before that San Bernardino, maybe a little bit, but Brussels and Paris and this thing in Lahore and Pakistan, people, should people be legitimately afraid that it's only a matter of time before something awful happens here or more than one incident? Well, Mike, uh, Sorry, let me uh, set the stage for my answer here by saying the reason that I'm on the radio with you here is because I never say no, okay? Why do I never say no? Because people like you get the truth out. Now, I've been in Washington. Next week, I celebrate my 53rd year in Washington. Okay, came down as a young second lieutenant, U.S. Army. Hmm. Now, I've seen a lot of change in five decades. But there's one change that dwarfs, dwarfs all the other changes I've seen, and that is that we no longer have, in any real sense, a free media. This is big. This could not be bigger, you know. Mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson who lived down this way in Virginia. You know, he said, you know, if it was a choice between a government and a free media, a free press in those days, he'd pick a free press because without a free press, a government would always become tyrannical, okay? So what am I saying? I'm saying that the good news is that uh, the younger generation doesn't read the New York Times anymore. It doesn't read the Washington Post, and that is incredibly good. That's why they're all for Bernie, okay? Now, the bad news is that the people that grew up with me in New York, now, you know, I, I spent my first 23 years in New York City, okay? Now, you couldn't go to bed at night unless you had read the New York Times cover to cover, okay? Right. Now, my, my parents, they used to, if they didn't finish it, they fell asleep, they used to put it in a special place, right? And before they picked up the next morning's paper, they'd finish it, okay? Now, what does that mean? That means that people in New York of my age and slightly younger still think, still think that they get straight news from the New York Times. And, of course, they don't. So that's the big thing. Now, when you ask about terrorism, when you ask about how these uh, loony Republicans can get so much play, it's because the media is owned by the same corporations that profiteer. I don't say profit. I say profiteer on war, on violence. You know, mm-hmm. uh, when the Ukraine broke out, and most people believe, because the New York Times and the Washington Post say it this way, it all started when Putin invaded Crimea, right? Well, number one, he didn't invade Crimea. <laughs> he already, he already thousand troops there. But the other more important thing is they, they point to a, a video that was made which shows Putin, and this is the headline in the Washington Post, for example, mm-hmm. Putin planned invasion of Crimea well ahead of time, right? Okay. First sentence, 
on the 23rd of February 2014, Vladimir Putin admits now on camera that he convened his national security advisors to decide what they should do about Crimea. Aha, see, that was weeks before they seized Crimea. Well, what's the truth there? Well, I asked my friends. I asked people around here. I asked progressive people. What's wrong with that story? And they say, well, so I say, well, look at the date, 23rd of February. Does that mean anything to you? Um, what happened the day before? <laughs> the day before the United States mounted what 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 uh, George Friedman, the head of Stratfor, calls the most blatant coup in the history of mankind. They deposed a duly elected government, which was more Russian-friendly than they liked. So it's the 22nd with the coup that was advertised in advance on YouTube, for God's sake, hmm. uh, that made Putin uh, gather his, his, uh, his national security experts and figure, well, hey, that's our, that's our only warm water port. Do we want NATO in Crimea? And so what I'm saying here is that from the media, even highly educated or people who think they're highly educated only know half the story, and usually that half the story uh, prejudices them in such a way as to think that Putin, 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 very bad, very bad. Putin sometimes wear no shirt, sometimes white horse with no shirt. Putin invade Crimea, Putin, very bad. It's, it's a lot of bull. It all started when we decided to depose a government on the border of, of Russia, and we, if, if, if the State Department didn't realize that the Russians would, would act very swiftly to make sure that their sole naval port that is free of ice all year would be protected, then they don't only think about Russia, they only think about Vladimir Putin. So, so the main change that you've observed after all this time <clears throat> is the... Um is this change in media, and it's almost a generational change, too, where probably if you take a dividing line somewhere under 40 or maybe under 50, more and more people are ignoring these uh, original, sort of these Bibles of news, like the Washington Post and the New York Times, uh, which always seem to have gone along or been cheerleaders for these things, and they still seem to be doing that. Um, uh, and then, you know, people are going to other sources, especially with the Internet, which is a real revolution. Everybody's got their sources of news um, and uh, information that comes on almost by the minute. But I, I, wanted since, I wanted, since you wrote an article in the Consortium News about uh, which focused on um, torture, because, you know, somebody like, um, uh, you know, the Republicans, especially, but especially Trump, were talking about, how uh, he would uh, he would go further than waterboarding, that kind of thing. But the, the essential thing I wanted to ask you was, since you've observed all this, and you can answer in any uh, way you want, the thing, the thing that happened in Paris, the thing that happened in Brussels, the thing that happens almost weekly in the Middle East or in, um, in, uh, in Pakistan or places like that or in Afghanistan, where people are, are suicide bombers or other people who attack people are routinely killing Anybody and everybody, you know, a complete, you know, just civilians. And when you when you have a, a group like ISIS or a splinter group of the Taliban, which took credit, quote unquote, for what happened in Lahore, uh, you know, yesterday or the day before, and then you've got uh, Brussels, uh, which ISIS is claiming, and you've got another one in Iraq that happened the other day where they just blew up, uh, you know, bombs in a soccer stadium and killed and wounded hundreds. Uh, and ISIS took credit for that. People see this, 
And these are real things that happen. Should not people be scared? And what do you do about groups like this? You can't talk to them. People should ask what motivates terrorists. Now, I had the privilege of uh, conducting a class at the University of Moscow last week uh, by via a very fancy Skype-type arrangement. Mm-hmm. And I was asked about this. You know, what, what, do, you, what do you, how do you approach this uh, terrorism thing? And use an analogy that uh, I, I'm fond of, actually. I say the way you defeat terrorism is the same way you defeat malaria. And, you know, I get quizzical looks, and I say, yeah, if with malaria, you find the mosquitoes, right? And trace them back to the, to the swamp where they breed, right? And then what do you do? Well, you get two platoons of, of Marines, and you, they're real sharpshooters, and you, you try to, try, try to get, try to, try to shoot down all the mosquitoes as they leave the swamp, right? Mm. Wrong, right? So what's the analogy here? Terrorists, so-called, are not born that way, okay? It's not like John Brennan, the head of the CIA, has suggested, CIA has suggested to uh, Helen Thomas that, uh, in effect, as they come out of the womb, the first thing a, a radical Islamic child says is, ah, and the second thing, I hate America, I'm going to self-radicalize, I hate the America. That's not the case, okay? It's not in their gene pool, all right? Mm-hmm. There's a reason for it, and the reason is the swamp, the swamp of legitimate grievances that people feel when they have no future, when they've been oppressed for as long as the Palestinians have been oppressed by the Israeli government, when they've been oppressed by Saudis to to cut their heads off in, in greater numbers than ISIS ever did, when they're oppressed by dictatorial governments that we support simply because they have oil and they pay cash for it for our arms, or because they have naval bases that we need. That's why they hate us, okay? So it's not that they hate our freedom. It's not that they hate our democracy. They hate us for what we do. And first and foremost, they hate us for what we do to the Palestinians. Now, what's my proof of that? Well, what did did Khalid Sheikh Mohammed? Now, he was the mastermind of 9-11, right? Now, curiously enough, uh, before the 9-11 report came out, um, he was apprehended. They got him, okay? And the young people working on the staff there said, oh, hey, why don't we ask him? Yeah, that's a good idea. Why don't we ask him why he did it? Mm-hmm. So they went to the CIA and they said, oh, yeah, okay, we'll ask him, okay? Now, there's a very interesting, on page 147 of the 9-11 Commission report, a very interesting paragraph. And it starts out by acknowledging that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed has a a degree in mechanical engineering from the University of North Carolina in Greensboro, okay? And so the sentence reads this way. Uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's animus toward the United States, by his own admission, comes not from his uh, experience at uh, the University of North Carolina or with Americans, but rather from what he describes as his intense hatred of U.S. policy favoring Israel, period, end quote. Now, that didn't get a lot of play in the New York Times or the Washington Post, and I'm not saying that's the only factor, but that's what Khalid Sheikh Mohammed told his interrogators right off the bat. It was a key factor, and it remains a key factor 
because what the Palestinians continue to suffer, enabled solely by our country, is something that feeds that swamp of grievances. Well, I think a lot of people really do understand that. I mean, that may be the main thing, but also there's the generalized uh, decades and decades and decades of the United States, especially the CIA, that where you where you labored for so many years, have overthrown democratically elected governments. The United States has aided and trained uh, secret police, brutal secret police, and, and supported Middle Eastern dictatorships. There are plenty of reasons to hate them. Um, and as far as places like Paris and Brussels, um, these are former, it's almost a kind of political and uh, social and who knows what other kind of karma. I mean, uh, you, I'm not, you know, uh, there's no way I'm excusing the people who did these things, but they were these colonial imperialistic powers that treated the rest of the world, uh, the Middle East, uh, Far East, Central America, and that includes the United States, uh, like peons and slaves and stole everything from them and supported dictatorships and were incredibly brutal, like the French in, uh, in Vietnam. So the reasons for all this, you can trace the reasons back, and I suppose, uh, and it's not like President Bush said, you know, uh, they hate us because of our freedoms. Well, I don't believe that for a second, neither did anybody else with sense believe that. So all these things, and these, these things are still going on. You've got the United States running bombing missions. I, I read somewhere that they ran out of bombs, and they had to, uh, there was a lull, you know, where they're bombing ISIS uh, camps or ISIS, you know, uh, you know, locations. But although we know what caused all this, and maybe what continues to cause this, uh, you've got these groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda or the Taliban sprinter groups who are taking credit, who are actually supplying uh, people in cells in various places. And these people are actually killing people in, in, in places. So it's a tricky situation. I mean, you can change over the long haul. You can change the way you act towards these people and stop, you know, creating them. I mean, we're, you know, stop creating the situation with breeds terrorists, like, you know, when you were talking about. But what do you do at the very moment with these groups that um, – are un, seem to be unstoppable, that, that are dedicated to sort of mindless violence. What do you do at that time, even though you're aware of what caused it? First thing you do is you cut off the support for them. Who's supporting them? Our great ally, the Saudis, hmm. the Qataris, and the Turks. Now, why is it that U.S. politicians, at the very mention of the word Saudi Arabia, start to quiver and shake? Well, it's because, now, listen carefully. Hmm. Uh, U.S. arms merchants, the ones that Pope Francis, to his great credit, called the blood-stained arms traders, okay? They have offered the Saudi government $100 billion, billion B with a B, okay, billion dollars worth of arms uh, during the tenure of uh, President Barack Obama. Now, that's a lot of money, Mike. And uh, when people say to me, yeah, right, right, don't exaggerate, for God's sake. Yeah, they offered $100 billion, but the only $50 billion has been approved. Hmm. Well, Mike, I suggest to you that uh, the adjective or adverb only does not belong before the figure $50 billion, okay? Right. Now, that's it. Now, when Ike talked about the military-industrial complex, he meant to talk about, well, actually, his first draft said military-industrial-congressional complex. 
Now, the Congress appropriates the money. The arms manufacturers make the weapons. They sell the weapons. They get cash in return. That Some of that cash goes to our representatives and to our senators. They appropriate more money. I mean, is this a great country or what? That's the way it works. And the fact that we haven't talked about money yet is a rather telling thing because that's what's driving this whole thing. Hmm. So uh, cutting off uh, the weapons supplies, cutting off uh, the support. Also, there are uh, there are countries who, who, for instance, who is ISIS selling the oil to that they have? Uh, <laughs> well, that's a Turkish operation. They sell it cheap to the Turks. The Turks market on the international market. The Turks are as guilty of, of all this as anyone. Uh, they've been the ones that have facilitated not only the uh, the transit of uh, of terrorists and materiel, but the transit, and listen to this now, the transit of chemical precursors that have been put together in Syria by moderate or other rebels and used sarin gas, for example, used to try to mousetrap the United States into attacking Syria with its armed forces. That happened at the end of the summer in 2013. It almost and this is clear now, hmm. it almost got Obama to, to attack Syria uh, overtly. And why was it prevented? Well, because General Dempsey, head of the you know, Joint Chiefs, had the guts to go to Obama and say, look, uh, we know that that sarin, that sarin was not the same kind as is found in Syrian army stocks. It's homemade sarin. We think we know how you've been, how they've tried to mousetrap you now. We learned from Jeffrey Goldberg's article that Obama himself told Goldberg, you know, uh, the head of intelligence came to us, uh, James Clapper, and he said, now, Mr. President, please, please realize that, that the use of sarin there, which was blamed by John Kerry 35 times, uh, blamed on the Syrian government, uh, you know, that's not a slam dunk, Mr. President. Uh, you get, you get, what, get my drift. That's not a slam dunk. So mm-hmm. what I'm saying here is that this is an illustrative case. It's worth another minute. The end, in, in the beginning of 2013, Bashar al-Assad's army was beginning to win, okay? They were beginning to dislodge rebel forces from positions they had occupied for two years. Now, why was it important to get the U.S. involved militarily? Well, the Israeli officials that talked to the bureau chief of the, of, of the New York Times said, well, you know, uh, our preferred outcome in Syria is no outcome. And when she said, I beg your pardon? They said, yeah, it's sort of like a playoff situation where you don't want either team to win and you don't want either team to lose. I know this sounds awkward, they said. I know it sounds a little less than humanitarian, but as long as the Shia and Sunni are shooting each other up, and not only... Not only in Syria, but throughout the whole region, quote, Israel has no, nothing to fear from Syria, period. Now, if people are totally confused by the ins and outs of U.S. policy towards Syria, mm-hmm. why the president and, and uh, Hillary Clinton said five years ago, four years ago, Assad's got to go, Assad's got to go. What kind of threat was Assad to us? Nothing. Now, do the Israelis uh, think they could? Possibly, well, if you begin to win, yeah. So what do you do? You get the U.S. mouse trapped in. It didn't work that time. That's why. That's why Netanyahu and those people and the neocons on this side of the ocean 
are really, really, uh, really angry at Obama because they didn't get their war on Syria, the overt war. And now it looks like peace might break out, and that's worse still for the arms manufacturers and the people who serve Israeli interests in this country. Well, that's that's a pretty straightforward uh, answer. So you're linking a lot of this to the U.S. support for the Israelis and to the Israelis. But let me ask you this question, um, based on your long experience. Does the United States belong in Afghanistan, in Iraq, anywhere near Syria, attacking ISIS? I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't want to sound like an isolationist before World War II, uh, but the situation is not the same. D- does the United States have any business over there at all? Or is it just really uh, driven by money, arms, our allegiance uh, with, uh, with uh, you know, our nasty allegiance with the Saudis, with oil, uh, with the Israelis? I mean, is there any good reason why the United States should be sending? And now we're sending, you know, you know that the special, operates and special operations forces are in Iraq and attacking Syria, and that was the beginning of the Vietnam War and uh, Afghanistan and everything else. So should we you know, be in it? Should we be in these places? Well, the short answer is, of course not. Uh, the question asked is, cui bono? You know, who profits from all this stuff? <laughs> Profit is the word. Uh, there are arms dealers and arms manufacturers and people who are interested in tension because that's good for business. Uh, they're profiteering on all these things. Now, it's also you have uh, Obama with no guts. Now, he came in uh, into office saying that Afghanistan was a good war, right? Okay. Now, he he's very shortly found out that, that, that Afghanistan was a quad buyer like everything else. And what would he do? He couldn't stand up to the Hillary Clintons or the Bobby Gateses or the generals. And they said, no, you got to double. you got to surge. So he surged twice. That's stupidity, but it's also cowardice. Mm-hmm. Iraq, you know, it, it's you, you're quite right, Mike. Uh, being involved in that part of the world is uh, serves only those people who profiteer on wars, and it's not probably um, getting around to the notion that it's not too cynical to say that Obama is beholden to them, he's afraid of them, uh, they exercise the real power in our country, and, uh, and that's why a lot of this unexplainable stuff is unfortunately explainable in that way. What happens if there's a President Clinton? What would you expect from her with all this? You know, I have to recuse myself, uh, Mike, because, uh, um, well, most people don't know this, but I was beaten up very brutally uh, about 10 yards in front of her as she made a speech Uh at George Washington University five years ago. Uh, she didn't uh, miss, people said she didn't miss this word very well. She didn't miss a syllable. She watched it go on, and, uh, you know, I was beaten up pretty badly, put in jail. Uh, uh, what was my offense? I just had stood up, turned my back on her, and uh, remained standing completely silently. So I don't feel, uh, as, oh, her speech, by the way, was uh, a necessity to protect dissenters. <laughs> Uh, in, in in Iran, okay. <laughs> oh, in Iran, so, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, thankfully, I didn't suffer the same fate as Gaddafi, who was impaled by long knives before he was killed on camera, having been found in the culvert. The day after that, she was asked what she thought, and she said, and I quote, 
We came. We saw. He died. <laughs> so at least I was spared that. I'd beaten up pretty bad. And uh, so I have a kind of a personal problem with Hillary Clinton. I think you were quite right in saying that she's never met a war that she didn't fall in love with. You know, uh, I just got a word from the engineer that we only uh, have a, a little a few seconds left. So uh, you've been listening to Ray McGovern, um, and he is a longtime, was a longtime CIA analyst, and uh, he helped create uh, Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Is there a, a website for Veteran Intelligence Professionals, VIPS? Uh, we don't have a website, but all our uh, production, all our issuances are available on consortiumnews.com. Okay. Consortiumnews.com. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking all this time to uh, to respond to these questions. Um, so, so. Well, you're most welcome. Please tell your listeners to uh, try to get their information from places other than the New York Times, particularly as the uh, as the uh, primary comes up in New York, where mm. uh, one of the candidates is getting little, if no, attention, even though he's beginning to win. Right. Well, the New York Times has been trying to sink him from the very beginning. Anyhow, thank you very much, Ray. Most welcome. Okay. All right. Thank you. That's it for this week, and we'll be back next week. Devil